From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. This is going to be a college football preview show. Our first guest today is Reese Davis. Reese needs no introduction. He is the host of College Game Day, one of the most successful shows on television. Has been for about eight years now. Been with ESPN for about 25. He is the heart and soul of college football. We've talked to him once before. We're delighted to have a chance to talk to him again. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Reese, thank you for making the time for us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we know it's a busy time of year for you. You guys, we're in week zero. Week one, of course, is going to really crank up next week. Um, before we dive into that and the season, what does your offseason look like? What What have you been doing to take in college football? What have you been doing to escape from college football? Uh, I, I never really want to escape from it, to be honest. That's probably a, a downfall of my personality. But really, what I do in the offseason and starting in earnest, and I've, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I did all 130 teams, but I've got 80, 85 teams in a spreadsheet that I started working on. Uh, probably in June, updating uh, differences in coordinators, obviously the transfer portal with players going different places, pertinent stats, key games on schedules, uh, some storylines and tidbits and nuggets that you either pick up from reading the various publications or websites or even, you know, in conversations with people along the way. And I sort of worked through that. I My goal that I, I met easily this year, some years I don't quite meet it, but I like to get it done before practice starts. And mm-hmm. once the camp's open, that way you can sort of add to it. You can adapt to injuries and you're not spending time while they're practicing, familiarizing yourself or, or in my case, refamiliarizing yourself with personnel. Um, you know, what position units have lost guys in different places and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where teams will be strong. You're not really doing all of that in August. You're kind of trying to keep your, finger on the pulse of what's going on with the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the transfers and this is we're one year into the transfer world, really the portal opening up more liberally. And we're also one year into NIL. What is your impression a year in into the impact that's going to have on the sport? And one of the questions I think most of us are interested in is what does it do to competitive balance? Does it, does it exacerbate this consolidation we've seen in recent years or might it go back the other direction? Um, you know, it, it's a difficult thing, but the one thing I've noticed is that they're still playing college football and there were a lot of people, you know, screaming and uh, uh, renting their garments and covering <laughs> themselves in sackcloth and ashes and saying that the end of the world was here and that hasn't happened. Um, in terms of the NIL, I think it's long overdue and I, I sort of scoff and a lot of people that I really, really respect will say things like, this is not what NIL, the rules are intended. And, you know, I say, well, NIL is not really a rule that's been implemented. It's something that everybody, every person, athlete or not, has. And Mm -hmm. it has been limited, and now it's not. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think that's as it should be. Um, Are there things that make it a little unsavory in terms of, you know, we've all heard the stories, and who knows how much it's exaggerated, but 
recruit A says, well, yeah, I'm being offered, you know, this. Mm -hmm. There was a pretty high profile story of a high profile quarterback who said it's going to take 15 million to get me to go here. You know, it's kind of preposterous. I I have some uh, healthy skepticism that the figure was that high when asked for, but I imagine a lot of that's going on. And Mm -hmm. I understand when people say that that's not what was intended and, and it's not. Um, So I think, in terms of NIL, I think players have the right to do that, and, and I, I think the courts will say that they will continue to do so. But I think ultimately the path forward here is some type of collective bargaining with a group representing the players. I'm not really totally sold on unionization per se because it then puts universities in position to employ the players and not that – not that they couldn't have that some type of affront to humanity. I'm just not sure they're well suited to do it well, you mm-hmm. know? And so maybe the way to do it is a trade association or some such thing, or maybe the conferences uh, collective bargain with, with the players in their conference or something to that effect. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know exactly how it would work, but I think, I think that's the path forward. And then you have revenue sharing, Um, You have stipends or whatever it is. And I I even had an athletic director tell me this week that as it is now and with the way they're completely above board, completely legal collective is working, that most of their guys on scholarship may got, you know, 50, 60 grand. That's before Mm -hmm. NIL, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's -hmm. it's all with uh, cost of attendance and completely above board and and within the, the bounds of the rules. And then in addition, if they have value in the marketplace and they make a lot more. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that ultimately revenue sharing, collective bargaining is the way forward. With the collective bargaining, I suspect that the players might have to um, give up something in terms of their ability to move around. Mm-hmm. And if you are being paid, then you're, you are really under contract, right? Mm-hmm. And if you are, then you, you know, depending on the terms of your contract, you may or may not be able to leave when you want. Mm -hmm. Now, as it has been constituted up to this point, I know I'm giving you an excruciatingly long answer. (laughs) I get on my soapbox about this. Up until this point, when they have been limited in NIL and uh, limited in what they can receive um, outside of valuable things, the, the full scholarship, the amenities they have, the training they have access to, all of those types of things are valuable. And I would never suggest that those things aren't valuable. They're, of course. They're extraordinarily valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have always said, and I do believe, that in that situation, if you're limiting them in one area, well, the least you can do is let them decide where they go to school. And mm-hmm. if you're going to hide behind mm-hmm. the fabrication of the student athlete, which is really just something to protect them from workman's comp and, and such things. Um, if you're going to hide behind that, well, then they should be able to go to school wherever they want and play wherever they want. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't have a big problem with the transfer portal per se. Um, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for coaches complaining about managing their schedule or managing their rosters. That's their job. Mm-hmm. And I don't have much sympathy for them saying, well, people are, are recruiting off my roster. Well, coaches are supposed to be uh, these paragons of virtue that they often uh, that is often ascribed to them and sometimes self-ascribed to them. Uh-huh. Then, they can't, then they can't manage their own ethics. Uh-huh. And, you uh-huh. know, so I think some of this is incumbent on the coaches association too, to, mm-hmm. to self-police a little bit in terms of the ethics of it, because clearly it is not, 
Now, if, if a player's unhappy and he reaches out to you and says, hey, look, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm thinking about leaving. Well, that's fair game. But for you to, for you to, or a representative, I know, I don't know. A representative. Employee, I don't know that an employed coach would actually do this. I'm sure there are some, but it's more like, you know, getting word. Hey, you know, if, uh, you know, if Matt's ever unhappy over there, be sure to let us know, you know, wink, wink, you know, because we could really use a wide receiver, you know, and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the coaches, I think, bear some responsibility to self-police in this and to, and to abide by the ethics that they espouse. Instead mm-hmm. of going, well, I better do it because if I don't, he's going to do it. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of truth to that. But if they mm-hmm. want to, if they want to change it, then they need to be part of the solution too. Instead of just waiting for mm-hmm. someone to implement a rule that they can try to find a gray area to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Reese, I figured I figured you'd have a, a strong opinion on that, and we're gonna. It's that was a long to- opinion. I apologize <laughs> for that. I'll try to be shorter from this point forward. Not, not at all. And that, I mean, this is, it's going to change. There are these kind of legalistic concerns, but of course, ultimately it's going to hit the playing field and it's going to make a difference for teams even this year. And I'm excited about it, but I think it changes the quality of the play. You get some guys from some very top programs that aren't seeing the field enough. So they drop down, they get more playing time somewhere else. You get some other guys that bubble up and they get a chance to bump up to a higher stage. And it's, I think it's going to be, I think it's really going to be nice. Um, but obviously some things to sort out. It's a meritocracy and that, and that much more so, much more so, you know, and so there's nothing wrong with that as well. Well, let's make it tangible. Is there a transfer that you're especially curious to have eyes on this year? You think it's going to be especially interesting to see the impact on the field? Well, I think the easiest ones are at at Southern California with Mm -hmm. Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison. Mm -hmm. I mean, rare, rare is a situation when you have, um, when you have a guy leave a program like Oklahoma, who is, who is not only playing but is being put forth by uh, by many people, including including my buddy Kirk Herbstreit, and he wasn't wrong, saying this guy you know is going to be the face of the sport, and he's at Oklahoma, and he's and he's got the starting role, and he's a star, and he says, yeah, I'm out, mm-hmm. you know. And then Jordan Addison, who got enough uh, uh, passes his way to win the Bolitnikoff last year, right. he's out. And right. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's unusual. But with two players of that uh, of that ilk. They're the high-profile guys I'm looking forward to see. And then there's another guy at Ole Miss who transferred there from TCU, a man called Zach Evans, who was a great high school recruit. Actually, oh, had a, actually a really, really nice job at TCU. Coaching changed mm-hmm. there. And mm-hmm. in, uh, even though Lane Kiffin's got a little bit of a different look uh, on his offense with Jeff Levy having gone to, um, you know, having gone to Oklahoma, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested to see, uh, to see how he fares, too. I think he'll, he'll be a very good player. And I should, I should mention one more. I love Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma, mm-hmm. who was at UCF, and I especially mm-hmm. like him back with Jeff Levy, who left Ole Miss to go to Oklahoma. When Gabriel burst onto the scene at UCF, Levy was his offensive coordinator. And mm-hmm. I, I think he's going to put up gargantuan numbers for the Sooners. Oh, that's as a Longhorn, that's scary to hear, Race. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was enjoying that story about Caleb Williams leaving uh, and that. And now you're, <laughs> Better get you're ready. That lefty, that lefty OU is going to run out there and spin uh, the magic bean. I'm, I'm so be- tired of their transfers. Goodness gracious. If they were just, <laughs> if they were forced to play the ones they recruited, we'd be a, in a different situation. Um, well, wh- more generally, what, what other storylines as we roll into the season? I mean, you're looking at your spreadsheet, you're talking to teams, you're thinking about these things. Um, what are some of the storylines that have your eye going into this season? Clemson's rebound, if you want mm-hmm. to call it that. I mean, they won 10 games last year. They just didn't win the ACC, and they didn't look anything like 
the team offensively anyway that they have in recent past. I have them ranked number four in my preseason polls almost by default. I'm not sold on right. it, you know, and but I'm not sold on anybody else below the top three in terms of being, you know, worthy of being at four or five or whatever. But I think Clemson's bounce back is a story. Uh, a plethora of quarterbacks in the ACC who could mm-hmm. potentially elevate their teams and, mm-hmm. and maybe provide a surprise team to make a run at a playoff spot if things fall right. Tyler Van Dyke at Miami, um, Devin Leary at North mm-hmm. Carolina State, they probably mm-hmm. are best suited with teams uh, to be able to do that potentially. So mm-hmm. that's a couple of the things I, I'm looking forward to. And can anybody uh, derail an Alabama-Georgia uh, meeting in the SEC championship game, or is that a foregone conclusion there? So mm-hmm. those are those are some of the things some of the things I'm watching, and also Ohio State. Uh, will they be as dominant in the Big Ten as anticipated? I think they probably will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, those I think those are some of the broad stroke storylines I'm watching. All right, um, w- one that I'm curious to hear from you on is is on the coaching front. We had some changes in the offseason, you know, almost unprecedented changes, high program to other high program and multiple like it. Mm-hmm. And so what do we expect out of Brian Kelly at LSU, Mario Cristobal at Miami, Lincoln Riley at USC? And in thinking about how to make this hard for you, Reese, I, I, I want to I see, what do you think, if you were going to ask 10 years from now, who do you think we will have believed did a better job, Lincoln Riley at USC or Mario Cristobal at Miami? Oh boy, that's a, that's a tough one, but I'm, I'm inclined to say I'm inclined to say Lincoln, uh, okay. but I, I have been one of the one of the guys that's been a little bit skeptical, uh, not not of his ability, but because I think it's going to work and work really well at SC. But he was, you know, and I don't think they like it when I say this, but he was he was handed the keys to a Lamborghini at mm-hmm. Oklahoma that was in very good working order. Now he Absolutely. drove the heck out of the thing. There's no right. doubt about that. Right. But now they're asking him to assemble the car and then drive it. Mm-hmm. So let's just, before we crown them champion, mm-hmm. just let me see him assemble the car. That, that's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. And um, so I, but I think that probably with that, with that brand moving to the big 10, um, mm. perhaps even helping them keep a lot of the players who have gone East to play closer mm-hmm. to home. Uh, I and and the same would be true for Mario trying to keep players around Miami who've gone elsewhere and in, in, right. in the ACC. But right. I think it's especially true for Lincoln. So I'd probably say Lincoln, but I'm pretty high on uh, on Mario elevating Miami as well. But if you made me choose one, I would mm-hmm. probably go with Lincoln. The only caveat being that you said ten years. Yes. In ten years, if yes. it's gone well, Mario will probably still be the coach at Miami. I think, you know, as long as they're paying it. In 10 years, if it's gone well at SC, Lincoln Riley will have been in the NFL a few years. So yeah, that, 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 right. might be a, that might be a caveat. For, That's for good. That yeah. That's good. Um, how much fun would it be if those two programs were back at kind of their flagship levels? Um, I, I think it would, it would certainly give some fresh flavor. It would, it would uh, draw interest or elevate interest on the West Coast, and it's been down culturally. Mm-hmm you know, this is just not as important there. 
It's not. You can say what you want, and there are great players out of there. Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Najee Harris, all guys. Uh, D.J. Uyango Lule, even though he hasn't played particularly well mm-hmm. at Clemson, was a big deal coming out of high school. Certainly tremendous talent produced from there. Any number of guys that you could name that have, that have come east. Um, but culturally, it's not as important mm-hmm. on a widespread mm-hmm. nature. The, the world, largely in the South, particularly, and in Texas to a degree, I think in Ohio, sort of revolves around football season and the college football season particularly. Mm -hmm. It's not that way there. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. not a good thing or a bad thing. It it just is. Mm -hmm. And C.J. Stroud said it best, the Ohio State quarterback. He goes, why why play – you know, in front of half-empty stadiums half the time and dead crowds when I can go to Ohio State and play in front of 100,000 every time. Or if it's not 100, how many ever the visiting stadium holds, it's packed when the Buckeyes Mm -hmm. come to town. They want to do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Same thing for, you know, Bryce Young and and even Tua, you know, who was supposed to have been headed to USC instead going to Alabama. Um, You know, there are any number of guys who've chosen that and have had more of a – an intense experience, I would say, in college football. So if, you know, if uh, SC could elevate and sort of drum up that interest, I don't know that they'll ever have what they had in the Pete Carroll days because things you should remember about that, uh, they didn't have NFL teams then, for the most part, in that era. Now there are two. Lakers and the Dodgers weren't, you know, didn't have LeBron, and Dodgers weren't what they are uh, now. So you've got a lot of things that are different. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. SC can't be great because SC was great, you know, back in the day under John McKay and John Robinson. But there are challenges now that weren't there during the Pete Carroll era when they were able to be the sports show in Los Angeles for that period of time. Yep. You know, I think it's vital that they do join the Big Ten um, because these these names alone don't carry you whenever the real action is in a different part of the country. We saw it with recruiting at the university of Texas as sec picked up momentum, we started losing more head to head recruiting battles really because players just want to play in the sec. I think one of the reasons Texas had to join the sec was competitive balance just on the recruiting front. And I, I think the same thing's going to happen with sc already is happening with sc unless they get into that big, you know, the, one of the other big twos mm-hmm. Reese, before we let you go, I got to get a couple more questions from me, a couple more forecasts. We, we're a little bit of a quant shop, of course. We, we understand the limit of analytics, but we do run some models. And in looking at preseason forecast, ran a little thing, just blended a few quantitative models. I've heard you refer to FPI, and I know you know Bill Conley's S&P+. Mm-hmm. Plus. We've got another model, and we can blend them all together and say, okay, how do the models think about teams versus how the polls think about teams? And there, we can look at some that the models like more. We think teams are underrated. We can look at some that we think the models like a little bit less and get your opinion. Which Are we right or wrong on a couple of teams that we think are underrated by the polls? Two similar teams, the two UTs. The, mo- the model blend brings them in shockingly high, like 10 or 11, whereas the polls have them down in the 20s. Do you think that could possibly be right? Is it more right about one of them than the other? You mean Texas and Tennessee? Yes, sir. Um I don't know exactly where all of the models have them. If they're up around 10, I think that's too high for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's particularly too high for Texas. And I'm sorry. I know your allegiance, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that. It's okay. I understand. Now, now, look, the one thing I would say about the polls is the idea of voting, which I do in the AP poll, is not to try to validate your predictions, but reflect what you see. 
And if it turns out that they have a big time quarterback, if it turns out that, you know, they can provide a little help for Bijan Robinson and can, and actually have some physicality on the line of scrimmage, particularly on defense, then okay. But I haven't seen that yet. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I will see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tennessee, I think 10 would be a little high, although I'm much, much higher on Tennessee's offense. I mean, Tennessee's offense warrants that. Tennessee's defense has been like, you know, a sieve trying to stop water, no shot. Mm-hmm. If they can just occasionally stop somebody, Tennessee Tennessee's going to have a chance not only to have a good season, but maybe to clip, uh, clip somebody. They've got a really uh, fortuitous setup in the schedule. They get Alabama at home, if memory serves, the week after the big Nick Jimbo showdown. Okay. Um, and look, there's going to be some emotional capital spent in that one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, Tennessee, yeah, right. uh, you know, which next to Auburn historically, and, and some real old heads would say it's Alabama's biggest rival, historically right. speaking. Right. They haven't beaten Saban, not once, not even the first year, not even the year when Louisiana Monroe did it. They're over. So mm-hmm. they catch them at a good time. And, you know, that, that would be one that um, – they could be well positioned to do if they can just occasionally stop somebody because they're going to be dangerous yeah. on offense. That's, that's a neat tip. That's a great tip for us to keep an eye on. On the analytics front, you, you know, you, you, you refer to FBI. You said some, I've heard you say some nice things about Bill Connolly and S and P plus. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we're always interested in as a community with, to, when we talk to non modelers is what could, what could we do that would be helpful to you? Like what, what would you like to know? Is there anything you'd like to know that data or models could actually shed some light on? When we were dividing, and when I say we, I, I'm, I can't devise FPI. When they were considering what to do with the BPI, the basketball power index, and then subsequently the football power index, they asked us what was important. And one of the things I said was along the lines of what I just referenced with the Alabama schedule. I said, can you find a way to put it in how a team might perform on a third consecutive quote unquote big game? Now how you define big game, I don't know. Is it top, you know, top 12, top 15, whatever of of your particular model? Because just anecdotally and my observation over the years has seemed to be that teams might be able to get up and play at a high level for consecutive big-time opponents, but if they have the misfortune mm-hmm. of hitting three in a row, mm-hmm. one of them, usually the last one, but sometimes the middle one, one of them usually falls off fairly significantly. And the word I got back, and this has been several years ago, was that that was that they understood the question but couldn't find a reliable <laughs> way to, to factor that into the formula. So I guess some things are always going to be a little more art than science. Well, that maybe yes, for sure. But the question is, can we push the margin? And I love that question. And we need to do the modelers have to do more of this, Reese. We have to talk to folks who use models but aren't building them to ask, you know, how can we elaborate the model? How can we make it better? How can we make it more useful to you? And really, what are you curious about? I mean, it should be a tool for you to be able to answer some of these questions. And we need to be able to make progress on questions like that. Listen, man, I need to let you go. I appreciate the time. I'm excited to hear what you guys have coming up. Week one, you've got a doubleheader of sorts. You've got the backyard brawl in Pittsburgh, I think, on Thursday mm-hmm. night. Is that right? And then That's you roll right. over to Columbus for Thursday night, and then go to Columbus for Notre Dame, Ohio State. What a great, what a great way to open the season. That sounds like a ball. We will be watching you, and we will be pulling for you. Appreciate the work that you do. You bet. Thanks for having me.
Absolutely. Reese Davis, College Game Day, ESPN, longtime ESPN commentator. Appreciate you being with us. You bet, man. Thank you. All right. That was Reese Davis. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow. Eric, I'm curious. That's, you know, it's nice to get a little Reese Davis voice warms us up for college football season. We had week zero. Yes. Last weekend, not, not the most exciting, even though we did have the Nebraska upset catastrophe. Well, you've um, seen that, week- I'm sure you saw the same stat that I have. They've set the all time record for consecutive single digit losses. Yeah, nine nine in a row, I think, going back. Yeah, I mean, that's remarkable to, at some point, there has to be, I'm not going to get into the psychology of it, that's not my expertise, but there has to be some, well, it could be that, it could be an effect of coaching now, because they're coaching differently, given they've lost that many in a row. And at some point, it has to start playing into the players' minds that, you know, in some sense, maybe there's an expectation that something is going to go wrong at near the end of games because they all know that stat just like you and I know it. Well, could be that. I mean, the reason that's interesting, Eric, you're you're implicitly going past what we we often say, which is, you know, losing one score games we often think of as being heavily chance influenced. In fact, one of the best ways to predict who's going to do better next year than they did this year was to, is to look at who 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 lost a lot of. Cl- close games, one score games, because some of that was chance and that's unlikely to lose a high percentage two years in a row. So the fact that at some point it's like, when is the streak diagnostic of something else going on? The other perspective is we sometimes look at coaches as this is a way you can see coaches kind of having an edge. Some of them really manage the game well, or at least we think they do, so that they have an advantage in these close games. It reminds me a little bit, like you look at basketball coaches, they, they judge basketball coaches by inbounds plays. And yep. it's, it's like, what, what, do, what do coaches do at the end of games that give them a little edge or blow a little edge? And so a nine-game streak, you start wondering, maybe that's not chance, and maybe there's some team psychology. But it's also possible that Frost is, has trouble in these closely, closely matched games. Well, I think another thing to look at, since we're Wharton Moneyball, last time I checked, would be what decisions is he making and let's look at the expected win percentage of those decisions and maybe i'm just making this up let's imagine he's giving away four or five points a game from ev negative decisions like not going for it when he is running too much on first down etc like maybe the reason why he's kind of you know losing lots of close games is he's not intentionally but giving away four or five points yeah well, we a lot of he made a big bold choice this weekend to onside kick it up uh, up eleven in the second half, and that backfired big time. Northwestern scored within like four plays. And I remember they were off and running. So you don't have to look very far to see him giving away some EV there. I'm curious, Eric, what what your perspective is on the season. I'm curious if you have any particular questions you're curious about. Um, I've crunched a few numbers. This one of the one of the themes of the preseason is that there's a big three and not only is there a big three and then others but it's also right after that big three everyone's kind of smashed together and so there's a kind of an open run for that fourth spot but the big three are head and shoulders above everybody else in kind of everybody's view and of course that's georgia alabama and ohio state and then a big drop off to the next guys um well you know rather than kicking around with eric maybe i'll ask someone who actually knows something about college football Bruce Feldman is joining us now. Bruce is a longtime football writer. He's national writer for The Athletic. 
He is with the Fox News crew, the Fox football crew also does sideline reporting there, is sometimes in the studio. He is the co-host of The Audible, one of the best college football podcasts out there with Stuart Mandel and author of multiple books. It's kind of ridiculous how much things this guy does. Bruce, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us again on Warden Moneyball. Always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me. How How is week one shaping up for you? How crazy is it? How busy are you? I think you guys are going out to Columbus. Is that right? In a few days? How, how is everything going for you? No, I'm actually, so I'm in studio on, on Thursday night at Fox. And then the next week for, for this season, I'm traveling with Fox Sports's big noon kickoff show. So I will be uh, in a place, you know, pretty well, I'm going to see Alabama play UT. That should be a wild atmosphere next week. Um, so I'm excited to see the games this week in studio, but uh, certainly excited to get out to Texas next week. Well, I'm, I'm sitting in Austin, Texas right now, and people are excited mostly about the pregame part of that game. The real game part of it is going to be challenging, um, especially with a couple of injuries Texas have had in the preseason. But it's still going to be a lot of fun to have those guys in town. And when you guys show up and people like game day just ratchets it up a little bit. Bruce, give us some of your thoughts going into the season. Is there a storyline or two that especially has your eye? Is there a game whether it's early in the season or somewhere mid in the season that you're especially intrigued by what's on the top of your mind? You know, there's a few things because you had a lot of big coaching moves this off season. I am really fascinated to see how much better USC will be with Lincoln Riley. We know they had a bunch of transfers, Jordan Addison, Caleb Williams, uh, a bunch of guys on both sides of the ball. They were awful last year, especially on defense. Uh, I know they will be much improved the question is, there's a lot of people who are buzzing around thinking this could be a playoff team. It's not like the Pac-12 has, has been that good. Utah is the best of the bunch right now. So want to see how that's going to play out because there's been so much buzz around USC, especially living here on the West Coast. There's a lot of talk and chatter about it. You've had certainly with them going to the Big Ten in a couple of years, that's only added to kind of the, the buzz around the place. Bruce, let me ask you a question about that, about the West Coast teams. Does, given the way the things have gone the last couple of years, and there's, you know, at least now the big three, as Cade and I were talking about, for a Pac-12 team to actually make the playoffs, do they have to hope somebody falters in one of the bigger conferences? Or if, you know, if USC goes on making it up 12-1, and are they in? Or do they need to go undefeated? What are the odds of even a, you know, a strong Pac-12 team making the championship? Well, they need a few things, I think, to break early in the season that would help their case. Let's start with the defending national champs. Georgia is playing Oregon. Dan Lanning's a new coach at Oregon. He obviously was a defensive coordinator at Georgia. This is a talented uh, Ducks team. If they can somehow beat Georgia in SEC country, that would be a big statement win for the Pac-12, something they really need on a, on a smaller scale, but not that much smaller. Utah plays Florida. It's Billy Napier's first game. Utah is really good. They're a preseason pick to win the Pac-12. Maybe Florida is the third best team in the SEC East. Maybe they're the fourth best team. It's not like this is this is a you know a top 10 Florida team, but it's a win that really the Pac-12 needs. So I think you, you know, you'd start with those kinds of things because I just feel like the margin for error for USC is going to be pretty small or the margin for error for, for Utah or Oregon or even UCLA. I just think that when you're not playing, especially in the case of, of USC, they'll get Notre Dame later in the year. I think Notre Dame is good. I don't know if Notre Dame is great right now, 
if Notre, you know, this is not a Pac-12 game, I'm going to say, but if Notre Dame can go into Columbus and do what Oregon did to them last year and win, uh, that makes Notre Dame a lot more of a big chip win if USC can get it later. If USC, if uh, Notre Dame ends up getting smashed or can't keep up with Ohio State and Columbus this weekend, which is my hunch that's going to happen and that they're going to have a hard time, then all of a sudden you beat Notre Dame, and I'm not sure how much of a push that the Pac-12 or USC is going to get. Mm-hmm. Bruce, let me ask you about an internal game to the to, to the Pac-12. You're a LA guy, and USC is getting all the attention, but a lot of folks think UCLA is going to be coming this year. If you had to put money right now, I shouldn't ask you if you had to put money. How do you think that end of season game is going to go between those two teams? And who do you really think is going to have the better season this year? You know, our crew, TV crew, I was a sideline reporter for last year's game at USC and UCLA just hammered them. They put up over 60 points. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no comparison between the two teams. You could see UCLA was a much more physical team. I think this is a really good Bruins team. Now they, they took a bunch of transfers too, especially on defense that I think will help them a lot. Everything I've heard out of their training camp has been very good about the buzz on, on a couple of the front seven guys they've added. Dorian Thompson Robinson has been a quarterback seemingly there forever. It almost seems like he was a quarterback for Rick Neuheisel. He's been there so long, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's a good player. And he had a really good game against USC. Zach Charbonnet, the former Michigan running back had a terrific uh, first season back on the West coast with the Bruins. And Chip Kelly's really, really good at scheming things in the run game to give people problems and to, to kind of counter punch. And I think, I would not at all be surprised, even though they're a preseason out of the top 25 poll, I would not be surprised at all if they're a top 15 team. I think they are looking at a at a real good chance to open 5-0 and before they get a visit from Utah, who's, as I said, the the, the preseason favorite in this league. They're, you know, UCLA is a physical team. They are, they are very good. I think if, if DTR, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, can be more consistent and avoid maybe some some turnovers in big moments i i don't think there's i don't think there's any reason why this team can't be a top 15 team and 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 honestly can't i don't think there's any reason why they couldn't win the pac-12 i mean i think they have enough talent i think they're well coached and i think they have enough athletes on both sides of the ball so bruce let's just settle this once and for all can we just are you one of the people like i am that believes there should be at least six but maybe even eight teams in the championship i mean can you imagine UCLA or USC? At least let's give them a shot to play for the title. Like, I mean, that's what I've been. Cade knows this. I've been saying this on Morton Moneyball for the last eight, well, whatever, however many years we've been at four. Um, that's my view. I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I, I would like to see it at this point. Uh, you know, depending on your year, sometimes there's, oh, there's, there's only two teams that seem deserving. And sometimes it feels like there's five. You know, there's a there's certainly a good chance you may get some some uh, blowouts in there, but look, you can get that in, in a four team playoff just as well. I think the idea that you have would have a team that wins its wins its conference and just doesn't get a chance because of it's, it's kind of an arbitrary method, you know, like there one year, there could be a really, really good season for the big 12. Another year it may not, may not uh, be relevant, but I just think to, to kind of box it out, depending on the year, and depending on whatever the makeup of the committee is, to me, does not feel like the right thing. Mm-hmm. Bruce, one of the teams that has been nibbling on that playoff outer edge the last 
whatever many years we've had it, is Notre Dame. I'm curious about your take on the coaching change there. Obviously, you, you alluded to the coaching changes around the country, some of the biggest things that we've ever seen happen in a single offseason, from one big program to another. If you had to say five years from now, who do you think is going to have the better run, Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame or Brian Kelly at LSU? I would lean honestly towards Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. He is recruiting exceptionally well. Uh, you, you hear from players and some, from some coaches how well he relates to players, and I think that will play well. To me, Brian Kelly did a terrific job at Notre Dame. You know, there was a little bit of a ceiling there. I think he had really good teams. He never had a great team, and I think you need great personnel to be able to end up beating an Ohio State, a, a uh, Clemson, or certainly an Alabama or a Georgia, because they recruit just at a different level. And mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing from Freeman so far in his staff is he's able to win some of those battles. To me, the challenge for Brian Kelly more than anything is people are like, yeah, I think he'll win there. Okay, you think he'll win there. But what is success? The yeah, guy right. they just fired won a national title there, and he's one of them. Like he's from the state of Louisiana. I mean, like if you don't win a national title there or not playing for it in the first three years, they're going to pay you a lot of money to leave Mm -hmm. because I think the expectations are sky high. Last I checked, Nick Saban, no matter how old he is on his birth certificate, is not slowing down. Jimbo (laughs) Fisher just signed the arguably the best recruiting class or the most hype recruiting class of all time. Those guys are in your division. There's not a lot of cupcakes in the in the SEC West. Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin is a dangerous team, you know, and you have Arkansas is much better. They have some good players. They're well coached. I mean, Auburn is a little is down right now, but Auburn can be dangerous. So it's just Mm -hmm. such a loaded division. Mm -hmm. And I've got Bruce, you've got me excited. Just all the teams you've mentioned right now. I'm like, let's watch them play. This is I mean, that's all in the SEC. It's unbelievable. It is. Yeah, it's it's the most competitive division in college football because it starts with Alabama, but it's just so loaded. And again, I come back to, you know, if Brian Kelly goes nine and three this year, given they've been down the last two years, that'll be his nice first year. If he goes nine and three after yeah. this year at any point, the buzzards are going to start circling and people are going to say he's not from here. He didn't know what he's getting into. Oh, you're not playing against against Purdue, Indiana and and Navy and and, you know, the, and Toledo anymore. You're in the SEC. Right. And so I think that's the part where he has very little margin for error because that's how it is at LSU. Super interesting. Um Sounds, sounds makes a lot of sense to me. I'm curious to get one more take from you. We're going to have to let you go, but you, you've also got some real insight into Miami and you've been a big Cristobal fan over the years. What should we expect from them this year? What, do you, what should we expect from them in, in the next five years? And then one, one other question. Do you think they might jump one of the, be the, one of the t- early teams to jump out of the ACC? Is there any chance that they lead a conference change from out there at some point? Well, I'll get to that in a second. I think I was down there two weeks ago and it was actually at one of their first padded practices of the of, of training camp. They're physical and I think they will be really physical because that's what he and his staff will demand. I think they'll be better with the detail work. They have a good quarterback in Tyler Van Dyke in a conference in the ACC that actually has a lot of good quarterbacks this year. I don't think they have the firepower on offense to be a to be a a top 10 kind of team i think they can be a top 25 team but miami really needs more receivers they have pretty good tight ends pretty good running backs but you just do not see the difference makers at receiver right now at at miami and i think on defense 
They brought in some transfers, especially on the defensive line that are going to help them. Fortunately for them, they're in the weaker side of the ACC, Mm -hmm. the other side where Clemson's at, where NC State's at. Mm -hmm. You have it's it's deeper and it's 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 stronger at the top. I think Miami is probably as as talented as there is in that side of it. They're probably an eight and four, nine and three kind of team. But the way he is recruiting, you better get Miami now, because I Mm -hmm. think come 2023, certainly 2024 and beyond, they're going to be a team that's going to be a legit top five caliber team because he will recruit at a different level than Miami has seen for about 20 years. And with that going forward, I think, you know, academically Miami has really upgraded in the, you know, third last 30 years. I think if you're talking about the Miami market, you're talking about what they're doing facilities wise, you're talking about the history of Miami's, success on the field as well as the you know the Miami TV market for the Big Ten I think that could be intriguing for Kevin Warren in terms of it gives them something they do not have in in the Big Ten footprint it all depends on what the commissioners think it all depends on you know I I would not be surprised if there's the money there from the TV side to make it enticing for the Big Ten but right now the ACC has this grant of rights deal it's unwieldy to see if they get up, they can get out of it if they really wanted to. Um, but I feel like that's a question for down the road. All right. Fair enough. Well, listen, man, um, I just want to note, I didn't mean to do this, but you've talked about SC, Notre Dame and Miami as all coming and having real bright futures, even in just the next few years. That'd be a very different college football landscape with having those programs play in at the top of their game again. Be a lot of fun. Um, Bruce, we got to let you go. We know you're busy. Thank you, as always, for making time with us. I enjoy the football this weekend, guys. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You too. Bruce Feldman, writer at The Athletic. Also, you can catch his podcast, The Audible. You can catch him on Fox this weekend in the studio or sideline next week in Austin, Texas. We're going to grab a break. Come back and join us shortly for more Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a very special Wharton Moneyball. It's our annual college football preview show. One of the ones that I'm especially fond of over the years. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddy, longtime collaborator, Eric Bradlow, faculty colleague of mine at Wharton. We are rolling into the second quarter now. We're going to be a short little segment here with one of our favorite football analysts, Bill Conley. Bill, creator of S&P Plus Football Power Index. He is now at ESPN after a long career at SB Nation. You can find his stuff up there. He writes columns up there. This time of year, he's talking football. But other times of year, he does things that run off half his followers, like talk about soccer. And we need to have him talk about soccer more. They're They're all coming back back this week. I I notice the same names following me in like late August every single year when, when they have no choice. And they, they drop off when you go on too much about the Premier League? Is that, is That's that right. It works? When I spent two weeks in Germany talking about soccer, they're like, okay, enough. <laughs> yeah, you go past. I mean, we can maybe hang with you when you, when you stop in the UK. But if you go to, if you go to the <laughs> Bundesliga, you're going to lose most people. Um, Bill, before we dive in, can you give us a sense of the state of analytics in college football? I feel like I have a pretty good sense of it around the NFL. I don't so much around college football. How, how advanced is the world of analytics in college football? Well, I think it's, I mean, this is maybe it's a low bar, but I feel I'm pretty excited about it because the low hanging fruit is actually getting picked. Um, You know, I'd I'd love to be able to say more than that, 
but you know teams are going for it on fourth down when they're supposed to go for it on fourth down like fourth and one uh attempt rate uh, it was like 74 percent last year it was 92 percent in opponent's territory uh and that's crazy like you know that's that's a increase of 15 20 percent just over the last five years or so so i do think you know there are companies out there like championship analytics that have they started to make headway and now they're kind of recognizing, you know, other schools are recognizing like, oh, well, if they're doing this. I have to do it too. And and it picks up speed pretty quickly at that point. And, and mm-hmm. so we're seeing that two point conversions are on the rise in certain scenarios as well. Um, I don't know. Beyond that, I don't know what other low hanging fruit there is necessarily, uh, because this is a little different than the NFL where it, you know, pass more, pass more, pass more. That only works so well when you have, when you don't have one of about 15 quarterbacks, but um, I, I do you know, think one that of, one of the general areas I'm, I'd be curious about is around their uh, performance, high performance stuff, um, pr- you know, tracking all the metrics and the loads and practice and in game, yeah. you know, motion tracking, all that stuff. Some teams are probably pouring a bunch of resources, exploiting free college labor to crunch <laughs> those numbers as they should. I mean, other teams are probably neglecting it altogether. Yeah, I think that there are basically three categories of teams right now. There are the teams that um, have subscribed to these services and, and they have some of that tracking data and all these things. And they kind of have figured out how to get something out of it, whether it's just time saving or whether it's genuinely kind of groundbreaking uh, conclusions from their free army of nerds that they have at the college level. Um, the, the, I don't know for sure how many, I don't think that's very many teams, but they are out there. Then there's the teams that subscribe to all these things. Don't really get much out of them and don't, you know, don't really scratch only scratch the surface with what they could do with these things, but they subscribe to them because they think they're supposed to. And then there's the one, there are the ones of course that don't really subscribe. I think those are the three categories. I'd say it's still kind of a, maybe a pyramid of sorts the that third tier is is the biggest tier and so on but there are services out there and i think certain teams are taking advantage of it mhm all right well listen you're somebody who's taken advantage of numbers for a long time and you recently posted your final projections the S&P plus projections for 2022 again listeners can catch these things on ESPN or bill's also a great follow on twitter he's got his hand yeah. That's your handle. <laughs> His handle oh, at ESPN Sometimes. underscore Bill C at ESPN underscore Bill C. So, Bill, your numbers are kind of the purest version of the way everybody's talking about the college football landscape this year, that there's three teams head and shoulders yeah. above everyone else kind of smashed together. And that's Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, then a big drop. And then another tier, again, smashed together. And you're an extreme version of this because you've got a massive drop and you've got Michigan, Oklahoma, Clemson, Notre Dame, all within a point of each other. And A&M, Tennessee, just another point back. So so tell us a little bit. And, and the thing I'm most curious about is, okay, fine, fine, fine. Let's grant those top three spots right. in the playoff. Let's just go ahead and get it over with and talk about who's going to win the race for that fourth spot. And, and, and like just one stu- follow-on to that, yeah. Bill, just to Kate's question. How certain are you about, you know, I don't think you produce standard errors. How certain are you about those top three? Like, are you willing to give me 10 to one odds that those top three are in it? Like, how certain are you? Well, let's put it this way. There's a Caesars uh, prop bet right now where it's Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State versus the field. And it was like um, the odds were equivalent to like a 79% chance for Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. It was it was minus 300 something in that favor. Okay, and so I like think, four to one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think the the favor, uh, the the any sort of projections are going to come pretty close to that number overall. It's 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 really big. I mean, 
it's kind of the perfect combination. Obviously, Alabama and Georgia were the two best teams last year. My numbers, especially liked Ohio State um, uh, more than some others did, just because the offense was so ridiculous. Um, but now they combined that ridiculous offense. And, you know, CJ Stroud probably isn't going to win the Heisman because he's going to have two different teammates, Trevion Henderson and Jackson Smith and Jigba, taking some of his votes away. Mm-hmm. Um, that offense is projected number one. Of course it is, like three points higher than Alabama or anybody else. But then the defense is extremely experienced as well. They were at top 25 in my returning production rankings, which for, for teams that were ter- that recruit five-star guys and, and have a lot of turnover review, that's pretty much unheard of. So I do feel like, I mean, this is, there are always surprises. They, uh, you know, Zach Calzada sometimes goes out and, and looks like Johnny Manziel against Alabama uh, and then is, is, you know, the number 70 quarterback in the country the rest of the year. But um, I do feel like, I absolutely agree. Let's put it that way, that those are the three teams that should have a big lead on the field. And in my numbers, it, it really is the difference between three and four is the same difference as the difference between four. And I think 18 at the moment, um, big cluster of teams. And and that could lead to a lot of interesting plot twists and everything else. Um, but it also could lead to three extremely predictable playoff teams, which isn't just a ton of fun. So by the way, the, we ran massive people ran numbers. We're still kind of crunched on the catch up with, important details like the 47 players that transferred to USC, but best we can tell we land right on top of that four to one number. We're like 79% for those three, one of those three teams to win the national championship. But also you can look at things like, okay, uh, how often do those three teams all make it in a sim and that get, now you're dropping down a little bit. So all three of those are about a one third chance in our sim, two of them about a 50, 50 chance. But I'm really curious, you know, you're a, you're a guy who knows football and you follow football and you don't just, you're not a slave to the numbers. The numbers inform your judgment. If you had to pick one team from that next tier to slot in there as the fourth playoff, who would you pick? I think every single time, like this, that's been a pretty common. Every time I start with the, you know, top three, who's number four, that's usually the question I get on like radio hits and stuff. And I think I have a different answer every single time. Exactly. Um, okay. Be- because the, the questions are so well defined for everybody else. Clemson is, could have the best defense in the country, unless Georgia does again. Um, d- incredible defensive line. I, I'm not worried about their coordinator change on that side of the ball at all, at least not until next year. I think after they've had some turnover, but did you watch the Clemson offense last year? It was absolute garbage. And he promoted from within instead of trying to come out and freshen things up and, and modernize a little bit. He promoted from within an offensive coordinator. And I hate like that. I I really don't trust that move. I, I don't know if you can just fix things with slightly better execution because they were very broken last year. So I can't really trust them necessarily. Oklahoma, you know, they're wearing Oklahoma shirts and jerseys and hat and, and helmets and everything else, but there's a whole lot of change going on there. So they're projected fourth, but I don't love that. Mm-hmm. Michigan has new two new coordinators and two new defensive ends. Texas AM, Jimbo Fisher hasn't had a good quarterback since 2014 when Jameis Winston left. You know, Notre Dame has a extremely young first time head coach. I think I like a lot of the other pieces that they bring to the table, but they have a new quarterback and a new head coach. So I don't know. It's, it's really kind of eye of the beholder stuff there. And, and, you know, that makes me a little excited, at least even like I said, even if the other, if the top three are pretty hard set, you know, I really don't know the answer to number four. I I agree. Even if it is chalky and odds are, it won't be all, all three that chalky, but even if it is, it's so open after that. It should be a lot of fun. Listen, we're going to have to let you go. But before you go, I know when you spend as much time with the numbers as you do, you end up with some insights that, you know, the main media people aren't talking about. The polls aren't showing up. What have you seen in your numbers that that we might keep our eye on as the season unfolds? 
I think that two things that I've, I've picked, that I've talked a lot about this offseason that haven't necessarily been reflected in the polls. USC, to a certain extent, has. You know, they were like the number four betting favorite for the national title half the year, even though they still have to play defense, and that will probably prevent them from being a national title contender. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I still don't think my numbers have a good read on exactly how to handle that many transfers, that many high caliber transfers. And so after just they absolutely bottomed out last year, I still have them in like I had them in the 80s last year, and I think I have them in the 40s now. And I know that's not right. They're going to be better than that, but I don't think they're going to be top 10. Yep. So yep. I, I think that's been reflected a little bit in the polls. They're ranked in the teens in the preseason polls. And that made me a little, that made me happy. We were, we're not completely overestimating them there. The other thing is that Baylor and Oklahoma state won a ton of close games last year and then lost a ton of breakthrough talent and seeing Baylor like 10th, I think of the AP poll kind of surprised me a little yeah. bit. I thought that that's a really high bar for them to clear with a brand new secondary, brand new receiving core. People like stories, Bill. People like narratives. And Dave Aranda is a beautiful yeah. man and, yeah. uh, and a great narrative. And so just sign up. Sign up for that narrative. And if you're going to sell the Baylor Bears short, I, I want to sign up for that. <laughs> I'm short everything Baylor all my life. Um, all right. We have Sadly, we have to let you go, Bill. Thanks for making time for us. We're going to get you back. Don't worry. We're going to get you back probably <laughs> multiple times this season. One of our all-time favorite guests. Bill, love your work. Keep up the great stuff. And we'll talk to you very soon. Sounds good. All right, man. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. College football preview edition, halfway point. First guest this hour, Nicole Auerbach. Nicole covers college football for The Athletic, among other topics. She most recently won the National Sports Writer of the Year Award by the National Sports Media Association in 2020. She is a terrific follow on Twitter. She's great on the podcast. She's great about college football, but, you know, more generally, media, realignment. It's been great to listen to Nicole make sense of things that have been happening, especially over the last few months. Nicole, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, thank you for having me. Delighted to have you. I've been listening to you a lot this summer, especially with Andy Staples talking about realignment and the media and it's a super complicated seemingly really important complicated issue and i think you guys have been talking about it with about as much insight as anybody i've heard so really wanted the chance to talk with you i want to dive into that first and then and then transition to actual football but um you've covered and written about notably the big 10 contract what what do you think the implications are for this massive contract that just came in and and especially at this moment when we're seeing the realignment happening in college Yeah, I think it's interesting in a number of ways. I think everyone expected that this would be a massive deal. And obviously the Big Ten had goals and in dollar figures that I wanted to hit. And it's going to be it's going to average to over a billion dollars per year. I think that was important. I think the way that they structured it and to go from noon on Fox to 3.30 on CBS to primetime at NBC and creating this mini NFL viewing experience, I think was, was also, you know, a driving factor and leaving ESPN and just what that says about the sports media landscape in 2020 and 2022 and beyond. I I think all of that is very interesting, but what it really does is it puts dollar figures to the idea that we knew, but has solidified that the big 10 and the SEC are going to get to chart their own courses. They're making a different kind of money than anyone else. And as that stratification has increased and there's more separation behind them, 
Mm-hmm. It just makes it clear that they're going to dictate what a lot, what happens in a lot of different ways. I mean, they're going to have a, a big say in what an expanded college football playoff looks like. They're going to have input in, you know, what is the future of the NCAA governance model in a deregulated world, how the basketball tournament is structured, how all of these tournaments are structured, mm-hmm. access. But they're going to have schools that have the resources to compete at the highest level nationally, because they'll be able to pay the coaches what they need to. They'll be able to pay for the resources that they need to. If we get to a world where you're paying players directly or there's revenue sharing or something like that, they're going to be best positioned for that because they're bringing in the most money. So all of that just to me continues to separate the SEC and the Big Ten from everybody else. And so the word I just keep coming back to is stratification because there was that separation all along, but they're pulling away. It's a, it's a perfect word for what seems to be going on. Of course, a big question is what happens next, and no one knows for sure, and, and um, it's going to be a little while to settle out. But if you had to speculate, you could even speculate on two scenarios. Like, What are the possibilities? What do you think the most likely possibilities are for what happens next? In terms of realignment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, whatever, I think- the next couple of years or even the next five or six years. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different things that are happening. Um, certainly... People are preparing for the possibility that a court or Congress or somebody changes the business model of college sports. Um, I think, you know, as people have gotten really worked up about NIL and collectives and the way that they've been influencing decisions in college and, and the money that athletes are making, I keep coming back to the idea that this feels like we're in a moment of transition, that this doesn't feel like the end destination for the business model of college sports. And so again, like if that is a court or somebody that forces the NCAA model to change, it forces people to be to characterize athletes as employees and create an employee employer relationship. Or if someone decides to be proactive in this space and put parameters around it and do something on the front end, like they did not do with name, image and likeness, which is part of the reason that it's, it's kind of just a total mess, right? Like they didn't, they didn't get out ahead of this. They didn't put rules in place. And then you have the Supreme court rule against the NCAA. And then they're, they don't want to put any restrictions, any framework around it because they're worried about antitrust issues. So you you can see it going either way where people do decide to be proactive and try to get in front of it, or you have, and maybe that's like as the power five or as FBS conferences together decide to try to do something where someone goes at it alone or, more likely, it just feels like things don't change in the NCAA until a court makes them and until mm-hmm. that someone is forcing them to allow money to go towards players. Um, you know, maybe that's when it eventually happens. And there's various cases that are working their way through the system um, that could change that financial model. And then at the same time, you have, you know, concerns and fears and wonderings about future realignment and this idea of the Big Ten or the SEC, which are not 16 members as of 2024 and 2025, do they go bigger? Is there further mm-hmm. consolidation? And, you know, I mean, a lot of the attention around the Big Ten is centered on the idea of a West Coast wing. You know, do you add two or four schools out there? And then you have a true West Coast division to go along with USC and UCLA. That would allow you to have a late night Saturday football package that you could go sell. That changes the way you can schedule different things for all these sports. Or, you know, what ends up happening with the ACC? They've got this grant of rights that everyone has locked into till 2036. That feels like forever from now. Mm -hmm. There is an assumption, I think, across the industry that someone will challenge it at some point or Mm -hmm. multiple schools will challenge it. 
but no one's done that yet. So those schools are not quote available. But what happens if that changes? What happens if Notre Dame decides at some point that they need to be a member of a conference? I mean, these are potentially seismic shifts. And you have to think that both of these leagues that are at 16 right now are probably not going to stay at 16 forever. So then what happens if everyone is in these leagues that are, you know, stretching like the Big Ten now does from from the West Coast to the East Coast or the SEC, which now is, you know, obviously took the two big brands from the Big 12. You know, what does it mean from a national standpoint to have um, that consolidation, to have less of a regional balance and and all of Mm -hmm. these different competing interests and competing conferences? Um, You know, what does it mean from a scheduling standpoint? What does it mean from, you know, again, that separation and stratification beyond those leagues and everybody else? But so you sort of have both of those things happening this this feeling that a lot of people feel that is inevitable that there will be some sort of change in the financial relationship with players to be an employee employer relationship or revenue sharing at some point. And you also have this, this other feeling that it it does feel inevitable that the big 10 and the sec will continue to get larger because Mm -hmm. the schools that are not in those leagues would jump at the opportunity for that Mm -hmm. type of financial security and stability. So if both those things happen, I mean, it's easy to project a world where you have mega conferences and maybe that they are using some of this this massive revenue that they're bringing in to pay the players directly. But again, mm-hmm. it's you, you just don't know where those dominoes are going to fall and exactly how this shakes out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, even just listening to you talk about it, it strikes me that it, it'll be nice to see some of these changes hit the playing field. It'd be nice when, you know, Oklahoma's playing Georgia or Texas is playing Tennessee or whatever. Um, SC is, you know, visiting the big house. It'd be nice to hear, see it in, in practical terms and even to taste it so we can look forward to what happens next as opposed to just speculating about it. Um, but so, so let's move that direction, actually. Let's, you, you cover the Big Ten. In fact, you're in the studio for the Big Ten Network on a regular basis. And so can you tell us a little bit about how they're shaping up I thought there was an interesting question in on the athletic Nicole writes for the athletic, of course, and you guys had a mailbag question, I think on which team is most likely to give Ohio state a run for its money over the next few years. And some people are excited about Mel Tucker at Michigan state. People are worried about John Harbaugh in Michigan. Penn state seems kind of a history in some ways. What is your position on who the next real contender is? Cause there does seem to be a pretty big gap between Ohio state and the next tier. Yeah, it's funny that that has been such a clear feeling and narrative around this preseason. And at Big Ten Media Days, it absolutely felt that way. The way people were talking about the league was Ohio State and then everybody else. And it's like Michigan just won the league. Michigan beat Ohio State and broke through in those ways. But I think the idea of the year in and year out uh, competitor and someone that pushes Ohio State it's still really going to depend on the roster construction because we've seen that what it took for Georgia to get to Alabama's level was building up a roster full of four and five star players. And it took years of great recruiting classes to be in that category because, you know, you can develop, you can play, you can be at a high level. Um, but, you know, the, when you get to the playoff, you can see that gap. And I think that's what Michigan ran into. Like mm-hmm. they saw the mm-hmm. gap that still existed when they met Georgia in the college football playoff last year. So, I mean, theoretically, it should be Michigan. Michigan shouldn't be, you know, beating Ohio State once every 15 years. This is some this is a, a, a team and a rivalry that we need to be more balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think Michigan State is an interesting one because the way Mel Tucker is building and recruiting, mm-hmm. he is recruiting and building like an SEC program from a nutrition standpoint, strength and conditioning 
the the bodies that he's recruiting and that he's starting with. Um, I think that could be really interesting. And Penn State's always had athletes too, but there has always been that gap. I feel like every year they play Ohio State and they come out of it and we say, oh, but they still need to close that gap. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I do think the Michigan schools are are well positioned here um, and, and we'll see. It, it also is going to be interesting in a world where the Big Ten gets rid of divisions if, uh, which you, or changes them, you know, down the line with the USC and USCLA edition, you know, if the places like Wisconsin and Iowa that have always kind of built their rosters a certain way, and, and they've won a lot of games doing it a certain way, but it's not the way that people are winning big in college football these days, because they're not recruiting the types of athletes that they then lose to in like a big 10 championship game, if they would ever evolve and change the way that they, especially offensively, the way that they play, um, to be more competitive or close the gap with the Ohio States, or if they're just being true to themselves. So I think all of that, is going to be really interesting. And some of those dynamics will shake out differently. Once the, once the way that we determine, you know, who the champions are of these conferences and not just the big 10, but all of them. um, Nicole, I think one of the things you're alluding to is that once there's no divisions, if there is one strong division and it's super concentrated in the East and big 10, we may never say, I mean, right now, a Wisconsin or an Iowa is going to emerge from the West every year and play in that championship game with no divisions. It could just be perennially, you know, some combination of Penn State, Michigan and Ohio State. And we can do that in other other conferences as well. And so that might be a pressure, as you're saying, to force some of these programs to go about things differently. One analogy I thought of a few weeks ago, see if it works for you, is Michigan State feels a little bit Texas A&M like to me. Is, to what extent are they the Texas A&M of the Big Ten in that they're they're the they're the land grant school. They're not the big university with the fancy with the fancy town, but they're throwing a lot of money and they've got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and they've actually got a lot of talent and enough history to back it up. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel. I hadn't really thought about that. And um, you know, I would say Michigan State fans would immediately tell you uh they they win more than eight games. Um they're not, you know, these these inevitable eight and four teams good, every good. year since Jimbo Fisher's got there. Um, but I do think the way that they're spending and supporting the football program is very interesting. I mean, obviously, Mel Tucker's contract was that and James Franklin sort of reset the market, but also the way that Mel Tucker's was structured. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very interesting off of, again, one one season of real success. But obviously, a lot of people buy in. They're ahead of schedule. They're building up. They're using the portal in a really smart way that other people are trying to duplicate in terms of their player evaluation and how they're getting the fit. But I, I do think that, you know, they have a couple of these boosters that are really committed to um, to elevating that that product. And this mm-hmm. is a team in the college football playoff era. Not many teams have actually made it there. Michigan State has. But then they felt like it was stagnant. And when D'Antonio retired, I mean, this is a totally different program, a totally different mm-hmm. feel, the mm-hmm. way that their roster is constructed, the way that they play. So I think it's going to be very interesting because I think that, you know, like you said, the way that they are spending and the chip on the shoulder combination is definitely true. As someone who went to Michigan, I mean, you feel it in that state. That dynamic is very real. And I think especially, you know, as Mel Tucker has beaten Michigan already, they're doing mm-hmm. things that you really that really are important to that program. But again, in a different world, even they, they made the playoff. They, they won the, the Big Ten out of the East. But I, I think that they are, um, you know, they have these very high aspirations. And, you know, I think they are going to be a major player because of the way they're spending, but also the way that they're constructing the roster for this, for college football today. That's exactly what you need to do. That's great. Um, it'll be a fun story to keep an eye on. One other school I want to ask you about in particular, you wrote your preview article about Pittsburgh 
And Pittsburgh, I, a, a couple things about Pittsburgh. One, no team has a more interesting first two games than Pittsburgh has. They have West Virginia and Tennessee. Um, West Virginia being the backyard brawl, they should win that game. Tennessee, I think, is a fantastic test of two programs that both want to be high profile this year, may or may not be. Um, but I've I've got a I've got a a, nat- a native skepticism about Narduzzi. I think it just is a bias against these traditionalist coaches who are kind of against the game, the, the where some of the game has gone. Tell me I'm wrong about that. I think this is probably the wrong year to short them because they've got so much talent back. But I'm a little bit short Narduzzi, and and I'm just I'm igni- I'm admitting my bias. But I'm, I want to hear more from you about Pittsburgh. Yeah, they're a really interesting roster because obviously they won the ACC last year and they broke through in that way. But a lot of people probably would discount it because Clemson wasn't in the ACC championship game. And Clemson was, quote, down, even though they won 10 games and they were still pretty good by the end of the year, still had a really great defense. But Pitt, you know, I was talking to an opposing coach for that piece on The Athletic, previewing them, and they were just really high on Pitt because they returned the entire offensive line. They returned great running backs. The defensive front is all back. And they basically said, like, you're returning all of these key pieces from a team that won an ACC. You're replacing the quarterback and the top receiver. And those are obviously very important positions. And this is a quarterback who went to the New York as a Heisman Trophy finalist. You're also getting – you have a new offensive coordinator. But it does feel like they are set up to, at the very least, win the Coastal again. I think they should be the clear favorites because mm-hmm. Keaton Slovis, who's just been named their starting quarterback, I mean, he has a lot of experience at USC – Um, They do have targets in the passing game. And again, this is a program that just figured out exactly what it took to win an ACC title, despite, you know, they they did lose in the non-conference to Western Michigan. Um, And they were in some shootouts, which is also not typical for a Pat Narduzzi team, because usually Mm -hmm. defensively um, they're locked down a little bit more. But they did what they had to do to win in college football in 2021 and to win in a league that has a lot of great quarterbacks in the ACC. So I think they're the clear favorites in the coastal. I think, um, you know, I expect to see them in the ACC championship game again, but I do think that Tennessee game is going to be very, very interesting. I don't think we realized, you know, where Tennessee was in their builds when these two teams Mm -hmm. played last year. And Mm -hmm. I think they're going to be better than people think as well. And Josh Heupel and this offense, I think are going to be very fun to watch. So that's a really good measuring stick game. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, the brawl, the backyard brawl, I just love that it was, it's brought back. I mean, we've lost so many great college football rivalries due to conference realignment. So I am just so thrilled. And I know it's already, it was like sold out basically the first day they put the tickets out and all these things. But I just hope that, you know, the success of that and what we're going to see and the energy around it um, leads to more games like that getting scheduled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's going to be the debut, college college game day debut, thir- first Thursday, week one. It's going to be a, a ball. Um, Nicole, we're going to need to let you go. But one last question for you. We're, you know, we, we are mostly in the world of analytics around here. We're sports fans, but we are also modelers and, and data people. And one of the things I like to ask folks who aren't from that world, but or adjacent to it is what, what would you like to see from the community? How could that community be more useful to you as a sports writer, as a sports fan? Are there any particular questions that you're curious about? Like if you could have something answered by some of these data or one of these models, what might it be? And then just in general, how, how could that community and the tools that they're building be more useful to you? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of opportunity in, in college football. Um, you know, I have friends who who work in the analytics space, um, but I just think that, you know, from a, uh, you know, we're trying to explain certain things and tendencies and behaviors. I just think we're still so short on defensive metrics. I think it's really hard 
to evaluate individual defensive play. And I think we see that in the Heisman conversation because mm-hmm. you see all of the crazy numbers that, that the quarterbacks put up because they're touching the ball so much. And I think we're getting a little bit better. I mean, I think that people were able to quantify Aiden Hutchinson's impact um, in the way mm-hmm. he disrupt opposing offenses. But I just think in general, that would be one area that I think would be great to get more tangible information and more data um, just to really evaluate individually what a defensive player is doing as opposed to, okay, well, they targeted him this many times and targeted the opposite corner this many times or whatever, but just more specific metrics than just tackles, tackles for loss, sacks and interceptions. Mm -hmm. Terrific, terrific suggestion. One follow-up to you would be, what's one of your, what's a hypothesis you have? This is something modelers need to do more of is talk to people who are real experts in the field how, you know, what, what do you, what should we go test? If you, if you could just conjure like a test, your theory on what it is that makes a defensive player at some position, especially important, what would it be? That we Yeah. To I mean, are there ways, I mean, and maybe there are just to like, um, kind of the same way that people evaluate in the NBA, like plus minuses is kind of like how much you know, are you saving your team points or are you saving yardage? Um, like what are ways to, to figure that out? There might be a way, but I just think you can probably do different things for different positions. Like, um, and especially like, obviously coaches set up their defenses differently too. So a linebacker might be used in a different way, but right. I think kind of like comparing it to whatever you would expect from the input or, or stoppage from that average player at that position mm-hmm. could be really interesting. And again, I think we're getting more, of, especially about pressures. I think we're finally getting a lot mm-hmm. more information about like how effective, um, or disruptive pressure is on different things but you know i would love to see even more specific by like where the position on a defense or again like sort of you know how many yardage it's just kind of like when we started getting like yards after contact for offensive players like Mm -hmm. that type of impact for a defensive player to see you know how much they're they're really like saving their team or stopping the opposing team I mean, that's a terrific idea. Yards after contact by the player. So, so that negative or less is better. I've never even conceived of such a, such a status. Sounds, sounds useful. All right, Nicole, we need to let you go. Thank you for making time for us today. We love your work. Wish you the best with it going forward. All right. Thanks for having me. Nicole Auerbach, The Athletic. You can follow her on Twitter as well, doing terrific work in college football. Oh, and by the way, she just published an article 40 under 40 around collegiate sports, the first ever, the inaugural 40 under 40 for the athletic, terrifically interesting read. And the unofficial official coach of Wharton Moneyball, Todd Golden, is like right at the top of the list. And so we're delighted about that. Nicole Arbeck, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. We're not done with college football yet. Join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the fourth quarter now, our final segment of our college football preview show. Delighted to have Stu Mandel joining us. Welcome back to the show, Stuart. You are the longtime college football writer and now editor-in-chief at The Athletic, editor-in-chief for The Athletic's college football coverage. Um, Also co-host for The Audible, one of the very best college football podcasts, co-host with Bruce Feldman long running and a favorite among many college football fans. Stuart, glad to have you. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Did you, um, how much reveling did you do uh, over Northwestern's win or was it, was it too cringy? Was the Scott Frost experience too cringy? What was the balance between that, between those two things? Well, I've noticed that obviously the Scott Frost and the onside kick has really gotten all the coverage and I understand. I mean, his, 
his job security was the big story coming into this season. Uh, but I definitely was kind of shocked and it was definitely noteworthy um, to see a Northwestern offense that was just so miserable, not just last year, but for many years now, even when they went to the big 10 championship game, it wasn't on the strength of the offense. Right. Right. The game over 500 yards to really run the ball down Nebraska's throat in the second half was a real uh, revelation. You just, if you're a Northwestern fan, you just hope that it wasn't because Nebraska was jet lagged. Uh, then it was, <laughs> that it was actually a, a sign of things to come, you know, with that offensive line and, and with those two uh, really good running backs, but most of all, Ryan Holinsky, um, mm-hmm. they haven't had a good answer quarterback for several years now. And he, mm-hmm. he was promising to say the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I was, I had this question before the weekend and then after the weekend's even stronger. And I'm curious how this happens. How is it that the Scott Frost kind of higher happens again and again. How could we be so wrong? Because I heard you say even just this week on the Audible, every Nebraska AD would have made that same decision 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100. We've seen similar hires around the country. Tom Herman to Texas was a slam dunk. Uh, Justin Fuente to Virginia Tech was a slam dunk. And these things flame out so quickly. I, what what is there a theme across these or is it just so hard to make these decisions? We just happen to notice the, the most obvious ones, but how can Scott Frost go from 11 and 0 UCF, the, 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 the child of Nebraska slam dunk, and then just such a disastrous regime. This one is a complete mystery. Uh, it was some of the others you mentioned. I mean, maybe with Tom, Her- you know, in hindsight, maybe you say, well, Tom Herman, they hired him off uh, two seasons at Houston. The second one, they had some big upsets, but they also lost some big games. And it wasn't like he had a natural tie to Texas the way Scott Frost does to Nebraska. I mean, this was, if you were going to, you know, draw up who would be the perfect coach for Nebraska, it would be the guy who led them to a national championship, uh, who's gone, who then came up through the Chip Kelly system and knows that offense. And like you said, led UCF to that undefeated season. He was only there for two years, but no, he was there for three years, but it was really successful run. And you know, I did. I remember thinking at the time whether, because at the time everybody wanted him, um, and there was some thought that maybe Florida would hire him uh, when they hired Dan Mullen. And I remember thinking that maybe Scott, not knowing like how just how loyal is Scott Frost to to his alma mater, that he might have preferred to go to Florida because you can just get it's easier to get really Fruits. fast athletes, right? That's what he had at UCF. Yeah. And four five years into Nebraska, they just they still don't have those kind of playmakers. Mm-hmm. It's hard to recruit to Nebraska. It really is. And yeah. I don't think that's the sole explanation, but um certainly it has hurt his ability to run the kind of offense he wants to run. Mm-hmm. Stu, do you think it's important in diagnostic and we evaluate a coach like Scott Frost that I'll just build on what you just said? Should we be thinking he's not great at recruiting, or maybe conditional on his recruiting? He's actually performing fine on the field. Um, do you think it's important to use analytics or like let's evaluate his class and then conditional his class? What would we expect his record to be? There are, you know, um, a couple of um, not search firms, but like consulting companies now that do, you know, when a school's doing a coaching search, they'll hire these companies to run the numbers. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't know why his would have been, you know, unimpressive given what, he, he led, you know, uh, he was the OC for a offense that went to the national championship game at Oregon. Um, everything we've, we've heard about the Scott Frost regime, the mistakes are more in terms of 
um, administrative, managerial, some of the hires he's made as coaches. Mm-hmm. It, it, it took until this year for him to um, devote a full-time position to special teams. Special teams has been a, a mm-hmm. you know, perennial fiasco for them. So mm-hmm. now you might expect that more from a first-time head coach than a guy who was came in with, with a successful head coaching run. But mm-hmm. I think it's been more that than it has been about um, – you know, inability to recruit. Mm-hmm. Stu, Eric just asked about running the numbers. I'm curious to ask you as a, as a non-analyst, we, we ask this often of our non-analytics guests, how, how, what, what would you like from the analytics community? What, what questions would you like answered? How can they bring more value? And I want to say something real quickly though, because I've listened to you long enough to know that your taste for numbers has grown, I think over time. And now you're occasionally quoting Bill Connolly. In fact, you and Bruce got in some spat over Wake Forest because of Bill Conley numbers that I enjoyed immensely. But I'm curious, what else you'd like? How else could do you think we could be better as an analytics community? And what or what would you like? Uh, yeah, to I mean, I, I'm definitely much more of a metrics and analytics guy than Bruce is, and I um, and I try to use them. For instance, when you're doing preseason predictions, one thing I love to do is look at Bill's. I like to look at his final rankings from last year and look for teams that he had ranked higher than you would have expected for their record or lower Wake Forest was way lower than their record last season. So it seemed poised to me to, to regress this year, but, Mm -hmm. and and that was now, now we don't know because Sam Hartman, their quarterback is hurt. So we won't know if that was really the reason if that does happen. But I think one of the frustrations I have is, um, you know, I used to cover a lot of college basketball and, and Ken Palm became the gold standard, right? long time ago now, maybe 15 years ago at this point. And it's not a, you know, there's not much debate about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a now rankings like his are now baked into the um, selection committee in college right. basketball. Right. I, we haven't had um, anything like that quite in football. I think Bill's probably the most cited, but even Bill himself will acknowledge like he's still every year tinkering with that thing, you know, mm-hmm. still, still figuring out what the right mix is of baking in history versus, and recruiting and, and whatnot. So you don't see it cited. I mean, I, it, there are certain, you know, writers you'll see cite his numbers, but you don't see them cited as universally as Ken Palm. And I can tell you that the, another frustration, actually, the college football playoff committee does have access. They have a, there's a company called sports source analytics mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. provides them with a lot of data. And anecdotally, I've heard about some of that, but they don't release it. They don't publish it. So mm-hmm. when they, uh, for instance, when you hear the committee talk about strength of schedule, you, you know, often I've said, what sketch, what rankings are you using? You know, what, how are you determining strength of schedule? And you never get, you never really get a straight answer. So just as a sport hasn't embraced it to the extent that college basketball has, and frankly, you know, obviously the professional leagues. Right. Well, football, it's football lags kind of across both professional and, and, and college behind other sports and analytics. I'll give you one dirty secret, Stu. Uh, when we don't know which one to use, we average them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it sounds like a, it sounds like giving up, but it's actually the fans you want to impress statisticians say, we're going to run ensemble. You ensemble the models and it's just averaging because you don't know which one's right. And often you do better with an ensemble. So that's, that's a, a little under the hood trick for you if you get frustrated with there being multiple sources. Well, in college football, you know, which ones would you be averaging? Like which ones are you the mo- the biggest believer in beyond bills? The, the uh, ESPN's FBI is actually mm-hmm. quite good. Um, 
And Bill, Bill's by, by tweaking it every year, Bill gets better every year, Stu. Yeah. But FPI is actually quite strong. Of course, they're pretty highly correlated, but theirs is a, theirs is a little different. Um, I, we've got a homegrown one. I've, we've published with a, with a longtime student of mine and a sports better named Rufus Peabody. We've published Massey Peabody for years in the Wall Street Journal and other places. And we, we have kind of the same approach as FPI, so it's pretty similar. Um, those are the three that I blend when I'm blending. Yeah. Um, but there are new people all the time. And the trick is we don't know, and none of them are perfect. I mean, you're exactly right, Stu. We're all trying to improve them all the time. They're really changing. Another thing that's going on is historically we just use team stats and work down from that. But now it's like baseball where they're starting to work bottom up. You know, every player has a value, and you start building mm-hmm. up teams like that. And that's a much more sophisticated way to go. College football is just getting there, but we'll see more of that going forward. Um, Let's talk a little a little football. Of course, the one of the questions we just asked Conley that's kind of the obvious question, and I'm very curious your take is if you who do you think is most likely to make its way to the playoff after the big three? Since there's kind of consensus on top three, there's a big drop to the others. And then one of the fun things about the season is it seems pretty open. There's lots of teams down there that can make a run. Who do you like if you had to put your chips on it on a particular horse or two, who would they be on? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's a big drop off and there's not a lot of logical candidates. And part of the problem is for years, you would have lumped Clemson into that group mm-hmm. and maybe Clemson pulls that off. But last year was so shocking in terms of the drop off on offense. And unlike most programs where, OK, you know, we, we don't have a we don't have a great offensive line. Some guys didn't work out. We're going to go to the transfer portal and, and upgrade that way. Dabo is very adamantly anti-transfer portal so i'm i'm not inclined to believe that they get back they'll be good i'm not inclined to believe they get back to that level i'm a big utah proponent Mm. um you know i could be made to look dumb here in a few days uh if they lose at florida Uh, but you know if you look at i mean that whole team changed three games into the season when cam rising took over actually four games into the season when cam rising took over at quarterback and from that point forward i think they were one of the hottest teams in the country. You saw the way it ended very, you know, down to the wire game with Ohio state, mm-hmm. um, even though they were playing a, a running back at cornerback. So when you have a quarterback like rising back Tavion Thomas, and then you have certain things that you just know you can count on from a Kyle Whittingham team uh, in terms of the defense and the being physical up front. Um, you know, they're my fourth playoff team. Um, is it possible they end up going eight and four instead? Sure. <laughs> That's college football, but mm-hmm. probably there isn't another one. Out. Like, There's not another Pac-12 team that I have as much confidence in. I don't see a playoff team coming out of the Big 12. I could be wrong about that. Um, and then the ACC, you know, I still think I really like NC State. I just don't know. That's a big, big, big leap of faith, right? They haven't even won their conference since the 70s, much less mm-hmm. reached the college football playoff. It'd be fun if they finally broke through. Yeah, Stuart, let me just build on what you said. I would tend to lean, and I'd love your opinion on this, I would tend to lean on a team that's got some history where they'll get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, given there's a flat maximum at the fourth, why not pick Clemson in the sense of, well, we know if they're equal, whatever that means, to Utah, Clemson's going. Come on. I mean, given right. their history, um, maybe it's Texas A&M under Jimbo Fisher. Maybe it's someone who's got a national championship like that. I would think, I just love your thoughts, how much, in some sense, I'm saying, why not, do, do you think the committee will put a lot of weight on priors if it's kind of even 
ever given everything else. They're not supposed to, but, but I think subconsciously they do. Um, uh, you know, I think one thing that when you're answering this question, you have to think about is, you know, I, I, I thought for sure, and let's talk about running the numbers. If you were to go back to the BCS era, you would have thought it was a foregone conclusion that we would have t- a two loss team in the playoff uh, multiple times by now. Not, it hasn't happened once. Mm-hmm. I look at the landscape this year and I see Alabama and Ohio state as being dominant. I see uh, Georgia being right there. And then I don't, the fact that we're having trouble coming up with a fourth team means that fourth team might have two losses. Mm-hmm. And then it gets into, like you said, if it's an 11 and two ACC champion Clemson mm-hmm. versus an 11 and two PAC 12 champion Utah, they're probably going to side with the proven commodity in Clemson. Well, all I'm saying is if, if our listeners don't want to have me break Sirius XM, there better not be a 14 and 0 USF or UCF and them not going against a two loss Utah team. I want to, I want to put it out there right now. This is a good question for Stu then. So Eric's always on about the group of five teams, which is fine. And he got his team last year. Who would you take out of the group of five? If we did see somebody come through, I would take Houston. Uh, I think, I think Cincinnati will still be good, but gosh, they lost so much from that team. I mean, what a what a remarkable um, testimony to Luke Fickle that they had nine guys drafted, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know that they're a program that can then just reload, right? At least not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Houston. They were obviously a very good team last year. They won twelve games. They have some chances. They don't have. I mean, everything lined up perfectly for Cincinnati last year, including the fact that they beat Notre Dame and then Notre Dame didn't lose again. That that which was you know essential to their candidacy. I don't know that Houston's going to have a, a showcase opportunity like that, mm-hmm. but they're my pick for the highest ranked group of five team. Stu, last year we had Pat Forty on in the summer. We were talking with him about his daughter's swimming, among other things, but we got some early college football talk from him. And I think he was the first one to point out to us that, that Indiana Notre Dame two-step that Cincinnati had. And if they managed to pull it off, it would be really nicely positioned. And it, I'm curious if there are any games around the country any week of the year that you think are especially interesting or intriguing or influential. So a couple of, for examples, um, I see the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, um, Tennessee is interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then USC, UCLA, we were just kicking that around because um, that's late in the year and it seems like it might finally be interesting and competitive again. I'm curious if there are any particular games, anytime that you are intrigued by. Well, I'm really intrigued. Week three is uh, Miami, Texas A&M. Um, I was actually, I was looking wow. at the TV schedule and I was shocked. That's not the CBS game that, that week. It's Penn state Auburn, um, which I understand, you know, that's a big brand too, but mm-hmm. you know, with, with Mario Cristobal taking over at Miami, there's a lot of intrigue there. And, um, everybody, you know, preseason number six team in the country, but they haven't quite done that yet. And, and a lot riding on Jimbo. Um, I think Where that's is that game intriguing match of college station. Um, you know, a night game at College Station, no less. I think so actually fun. it kicks off at 9 p.m. Eastern. So um, all kinds of right potential for weirdness in that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was the their seven overtime game, was that that wasn't in College Station, was it? That was in Mississippi? In Mississippi? Uh, did the LSU Mississippi, uh, LSU A&M game? No, yeah, yeah, it, oh, that, that's right. Was it in, in LSU? I think that was in Kyle Field, yeah. Oh, it was. Well, the, the Alabama game last year, we have friends who were there and are still talking about it, basically. It's only two hours um, from Austin to College Station. I just looked it up. I'm thinking Cade Massey might need to do something uh, live from <laughs> there for Wharton Moneyball. I think you I, need to go to that I've, game. 
I've said for years, if I could only go to one more college game, even though I'm a Longhorn, I would probably go to a home game, a home night game at A&M. The, the spirit there, the, the, the crowd there. there. Have you, oh, you yeah. must have been. Buy your ticket now. It's unbelievable. They, they, do that, they do that chant kind of in unison. It's unlike any other place. And at night, it's really something. Eventually, Texas will play them again, and that'll be the time that I do it. That'll, that'll be good. Um, speaking of Texas, it, I, I won't ask you about your wind forecast for Texas. We're going to skip that whole part of your preseason <laughs> forecast. But is it true that you're coming in for the Alabama game? And, and if so, why? How do you decide where to travel? What other games are you going to this year? So I, that's changed over my career. Um, you know, back in the SI days, I would try to go to a game most weeks. And as time has gone on, you, you know, just digital landscape has changed. It's not, I love going to games. Don't get me wrong. I don't love the travel, but I love going to the games. It's just not the best use of my time. Um, you see a lot more college football when you're at home. Um, the column I write on Saturday nights now about, you know, final 21 final thoughts from the day is a lot easier to do from home. So Alabama, uh, Texas is, has a couple key ingredients for me. One, it's at noon Eastern. So <laughs> I have the rest of the day to watch the rest okay. of the games and write yeah, my yeah. column. And sense. I'm in uh, the Bay area. I usually fly out of San Francisco to get to the sec is generally a long trip that connects in Atlanta or some Dallas or something here there are a million flights between here and austin texas mm-hmm. so it's a chance to get to see number one alabama in person on a decent decent trip and and there's a lot of intrigue around texas you know you saw my pick i but that doesn't mean you know that they couldn't wildly exceed that it's they are to me the ultimate wild card team this year in terms mm-hmm. of the the floor and the ceiling Mm-hmm. Well, it should be good fun. Um, looking forward to it. Looking forward to the season. Stu, appreciate your making the time to be here with us. I'm good to talk to you again. And I just want to say great work with the athletic college football coverage. My gosh, I mean, y'all are getting better. All, great to begin with and getting better all the time. You're more than half of our preview show today between you, Bruce and Nicole, but we really enjoy the content. Hope you keep up the great work. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your support of the athletic. Absolutely. Stuart Mandel, editor-in-chief of the athletics college football coverage co-host of the Audible podcast, writer, of course, at The Athletic, and a great follow on Twitter. All right, Eric Bradlow, that is five interviews from five experts around the world of college football. Um, where has it left you? What are you thinking? I'm taking the under on this top, like on these three teams making it. Like, I understand. Let's say the over-under is put at two and a half. Maybe that's around 50-50. I think you said two teams making it would be 50-50. That's right. That's I think right. it'll be two. I'm, I'm comfortable with two. I'm not comfortable with three because, you know, there is going to be an SEC championship game, right? And I've got it right that Alabama and Georgia would play each other in the SEC championship yeah, from game, opposite right? Division, and right? I've got it right. And I've got it also right that let's imagine maybe one of them loses a game during the season. Well, then if that happens, then the loser of that SEC championship game, if it's the team that has a loss during the season, has two losses. And I just think there'd be – I understand power ranking. I understand all that. I'm an analytics person. I just don't see it. I, I don't see it this year. So I think – I like two of those three teams. I'm going to – I think there's going to be a, a power five school in there. I do think one of them's going to make it. Well, and I you, do th- you said power five. Did you mean group of five? Group of five. Sorry, group of five school. Mm-hmm. Um and I think too much certainty, it's why I asked a lot of our guests this question, I think too much certainty is being put in those top three. And I like the sim that you talked about that you guys at Massey Peabody ran, which is the odds that all three are in there, that's not 80%. That's mm-hmm. not what it is. That's not what it says. 
That's right. That's it's it's important for us to keep that in mind, um, especially when it feels so chalky coming in. That should be one of our big points that we emphasize. It's as much as and we're we're feeding into it. We fed into it in the interview, saying, "Okay, give them three, and they pick the fourth. But in fact, the chances of all three, it's odds against all three of them making it. I, th- I think we're going to learn a lot this first week because look, we both expect OSU to beat Notre Dame. I think we expect well, it's a seventeen point line. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, no, I'm saying. And we expect Georgia to beat Oregon. Yeah. Again, 17-point line. These big games have these monster lines, actually. Right. But my comment was, suppose both those games turn out to be one-score games. Right. Well, then all of a sudden, that has to raise your uncertainty about the rest of the season. And, you know, maybe not a huge amount. I mean, that's maybe would that would be an overreaction to say, oh, you, you always talk about narratives. Oh, maybe Georgia's not as good as we thought. Maybe Ohio State's not as good as we thought. It could also be, of course, that Oregon and Notre Dame are better than we thought. Or it could also be sometimes 17-point favorites just win a game by seven or eight points. There's nothing to massively, Bayesianly update our beliefs about OSU and Georgia. So if, the, if my prediction happens that one of these two may end up being a closer game than 17, very interested in the narrative of how, oh, their ability has shrunk, you know, the probability is way down, and I don't think it means any of those things. All right. Well, you've prepped us well for week one coming up. Thursday night, it kicks all off with Penn State at Purdue. That's a tighter line. That's a three-point line. That's worth keeping your eye on. And there are a number of games, not just the headliners, but a number of games all weekend long to get us going on college football. We'll come back to it, I'm sure. We are. We had the pleasure of our one of our co-hosts joining us here for the last few minutes of the show. Adi Weiner just slides in here. Afternoon to you, Adi. Well, good afternoon, guys. Um, we are recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday. We have been talking college football for most of these two hours. But here in the last eight minutes or so, let's make a quick run around the world of sports. There's lots of interesting stories. We could have done the whole show on these other stories. Of the long list that we've considered, guys, of the long list, which is your favorite? What's the most interesting story in the other in, in non-college football world? Well, before we get to spend six minutes on baseball, let me just say for two minutes, um, I thought – I thought Rory McIlroy defeating Scotty Scheffler could end up being one of these transformative moments in golf. Uh, McIlroy's down six shots going into the final round, beating the number one player in the world by seven shots on a course that had been playing pretty easy is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it reminded me of when uh, Jordan Spieth blew the Masters. He'd already won the Masters when he blew the Masters with three holes to go, and it seemed like he was never quite the same. I'm praying this isn't true because I love everything about Scotty Scheffler. I love his demeanor. I love his game. I'm hoping this doesn't lead him into a somewhat downward spiral because he's been the number one player in the world this year. And I just thought it sets up a great kind of, uh, if you'd like, competition between the two of them going forward. And it was must-see golf. It was fantastic golf on Sunday. It was stunning to me when Rory caught him halfway through the back. I mean, but we, we also, we kicked around before the match, we kicked around the, what's the, the scoring system, you know, the staggered start where Scotty started the whole tournament at minus 10. Rory started the whole tournament at minus four. We were musing about what that meant for the probabilities. Well, our buddy Rufus Peabody uh, does a lot of betting in golf. And so they had models. He shot us the numbers and their models had, had Scotty with a 32% chance to win the tournament with starting out with that favorite and Rory only 10%. But he also ran the model if they were playing even. 
if there were no handicap to start the thing. And Rory was the big favorite in their model, twice as likely to win as Scotty. He had Rory at 13.7% in a field of 30 golfers. And John Rahm is the second, around 11.5%. So he, their model really liked Rory. And so it's kind of neat to see them hit. No one expected them to hit um, starting out six strokes back. I think my favorite uh, stat of that tournament was after three holes in the first round, when McElroy started triple bogey, par bogey, he was 10 strokes back. Right. And so the fact that he even talked about this, that he was saying, look, there's a lot of holes to play. You never know what's going to happen. But to, 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 again, beat the number one player in the world from 10 strokes back essentially was just amazing. It was great golf. Mm-hmm. Adi, baseball or anything else for you? Well, I just wanted to follow up with that just to, for a non-golf uh, aficionado, uh, 10 strokes, even six strokes. How many standard deviations is that? Is that three or is that fewer? Well, I could tell you the the total dispersion of scores in the final round was between 66 and 74 oddies. So eight covered basically, let's say, six standard deviations. You know, wow. thing, So if the standard deviation was maybe one and a half to two strokes, we're talking about at least three standard deviations, but possibly getting in the four range. And, and I think Scotty Scheffler, there's only 30 players or 29 played. I think there were only two players above par in the final round, of which Scheffler was one of them. That's incredible. That's just an incredible comeback. Um, so I, I last week we were here, uh, Eric, uh, Kate and I were, were talking, and I felt I got a crisis of faith, um, which was, you know, I'm the anti-momentum guy because I've never found evidence for it. But our Yankees had such an unbelievable two, first two-thirds of the season, followed by almost a equally stunning reversal. And I just can't find an explanation for it other than kind of a team-level collapse. It doesn't, doesn't play out on the individual level. And and uh, and that's why it was sort of stunning for me to sort of look at that. Um, the Yankees then immediately went on a five-game winning streak, which they followed up with a three-game losing streak to some pretty bad teams. So um, I, I, I should I, say that I, I yeah. took some flack from some colleagues who listened to this about not yeah. too easily letting you off the hook for the chance explanation. That would have been that most parsimonious explanation, of course, and you were looking for something Always. Always most part, but this is an extreme. I mean, it's basically if you're asking yourself at what what is the what data allows you to reject the null, and if this event isn't the most extreme I've ever seen, then you're never going to reject the null, and then you essentially have no power. And at, at this point, what are we really talking about? Um, because this was, you know, the Yankees were playing 700 ball followed Correct. by three 380 ball. I mean, it's that that is on a binomial level. No, we, it, that's just, I mean, I can reject that as a straight, you know, IID binomial, but the game is an IID binomial. The teams change, there are injuries, um, and, and, and you have to recognize that non-stationarity is definitely part of the game. Um, and that's always been my explanation for when you see these sort of stretches. Um, but I guess I'm sort of so shocked about it because, because it is such an such a incredible dramatic turnaround. I'm I'm at this point wondering whether the Yankees are going to waltz into the playoffs. I mean, we'll win the division. They're only seven games up over the over the Rays. That's what I was going to ask you, Adi. I'm not even 100% sure they're going to win the division now. I mean, yep. I started to do the math last night when I saw that they lost. They're six games up in the loss column with 33 to play. Let's say they go 13 and 20, 14 and 19, which is not impossible. Why can't Toronto or uh, Tampa Bay win 21 and 12 or something like that? It's no gimmick. And it's easily no catch them. Yep. Easily. Easily. Guys, let's talk about the other division as well. While we're at it, the Dodgers are on, oh. on, just turning in a record. Historic. 
So what, how, how impressive would it be? How many teams have won? They're projected right now at 112 or something crazy like that. Yep. How, how would that compare to the, the best seasons on record? Uh, fourth, maybe. Um, if you think about it, I mean, the Mariners, the Yankees. Um, of course, there's a great Cleveland Indians team in the 1950s. Um, there are probably one or two others, but I don't have them offhand. But certainly top 10. Absolutely. So let me, let me ask on that as a follow-up. We often think that it's more or less a coin flip once we get to the playoffs. If they come in at that pace, are you really still going to say, ah, it's a, it's a coin flip when we get to the playoffs? Well, they're, they're not a coin flip. I mean, that's just Shane being flippant, and he's not here to defend himself, so it's easy for me to say that. Um, but the, uh, I think, you know, when, I, I did this some years back for us. I, I ranked order the, the best seasons in baseball, and then I, we asked the question, how far do you have to go down from the best season until you have one that, team that didn't win the World Series? And the answer was like eight or nine. Well, I can um, tell you, I'm staring so, at it right now, Adi, just to let you know. I mean, this is not necessarily modern baseball, but 1909, the Pittsburgh Pirates – one went 110 and 42 they won the world series but if we go back let's say modern baseball you're right it would be the cleveland indians the cleveland indians went 111 and 43 721 ball and lost the world series in 1954 now if we go back to the base, beginning of baseball that's the fifth best record of all time okay but you're Followed saying by the mariners i mean Adi picked the two cleveland indians and the seattle mariners were both well above 700 teams and lost the World Series. Matter of fact, if you consider modern baseball, those are the only two plus 700 teams that didn't win the World Series. Wow. Okay, there you go. This is exactly what I was looking for. Let's talk about home home runs. Which are y'all more interested in, Judge at 50 or Pujols at 694? Probably Judge because he's a Yankee, but this, I mean, it's still nice to see. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's really nice to see Pujols have have a surge at the end of his career in this capacity. But he's an incredible player, first round, first tier Hall of Famer by any measure. And this is a nice kind of feel good way to go out. But Judge, I just, of course, is more fascinating. Yeah, I just want to say also, I, I just did the analysis last night. I was looking at this. I'm now convinced Albert Pujols is better than Ken Griffey. And I think every measure, should, I thought I'd never see a player. Ken Griffey Jr.? Ken Griffey Jr., yeah, definitely than Senior, yeah, who was junior. also a very good player. But he has more home runs, higher war, higher batting average on every tangible metric, except depends how you want to remember Ken Griffey also junior also benefited from defensive war, which Pujols didn't uh, benefit as much. Those are the two best hitters in the last 40 years of baseball. And it's not even close. Wow. That's a strong work. Well, it's all the more reason to enjoy his going out. We'll, we'll keep an eye on judge. Don't worry, Adi. We're interested in judges. Well, both it's fun to have these guys shooting at big numbers here. Targeting 63 would be the American league record. All right, guys, uh, that has been a little bit of non-college football and a whole lot of college football here on the College Football Preview Show. Two hours. We do two hours of sports analytics every week. We'll do it again next week for the crew here. This is Cade Massey, Eric Broadlow, Audie Weiner jumping here at the end for Shane Jensen, who was not able to join us today, but he'll be back for Matty Daps, the boss man, for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.